The Small Business Administration expects the federal government to meet upcoming targets for more of its contract spending to go to small companies. The Biden administration is calling for 15 percent of all federal contracting dollars to go to small, disadvantaged businesses by 2025. But SBA is also trying to reverse a significant decline in the number of small firms actually doing business in the federal marketplace. For more on all of this, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the Director of Policy, Planning and Liaison within SBA's office. Office of Government Contracting and Business Development, Sam Lee. The administration has given interim goals on our way to 2025, and the first interim goal was 11% for fiscal year 2022. SBA has not issued the final fiscal year 2022 numbers yet, so we haven't quite gotten to the point where we're ready to announce whether we met that 11% goal, but we did reach over 11% for the previous fiscal year, fiscal year 2021. So we essentially met that goal a year early by having the government spend 11.01% of all contracting dollars with small disadvantaged businesses. So in terms of getting to these goals and these interim goals, we're doing quite well and I look forward to meeting that goal of 15% by fiscal year 2025. Okay, great. In terms of when you guys release the FY 2022 official numbers. Do you guys have a sense of when that might happen? Well, last year we issued the fiscal year 2021 scorecard with those numbers in the summer. It was in July of 2021. There are a number of things that go into issuing the scorecard. The scorecard is more than just these goals for small disadvantaged business, small business. It also includes subcontracting figures, which takes some time because the information has to come from prime contractors. It also rates all of the agencies on how well they're performing under requirements of our statute, the Small Business Act. And it also looks at the number of vendors that work with each agency to try to address the persistent decline in the number of small businesses that are working with the federal government. Right. And to follow up on that last part, you know, that is something we have kept an eye on. The contracting dollars always seem to go up every year, and that's a good thing. But the overall number of small business contractors the federal government does business with, that overall base has been on the decline. If you could unpack that in a little bit more detail, where the current state of things are in terms of that contracting base and what SBA and other agencies are doing to increase that base of small business contractors. The, the government's recognized, the federal government has recognized that the number of small businesses that have been working in federal contracting as prime contractors has declined year after year. If you look at it going back to 2009, 2010 to today, the decrease is 40%. And then if you look at new entrants, which are first time contractors with the federal government, those numbers have gone down even more, 60%. And if you go back even further to a 15-year span, almost 80% decline in new entrants. And that creates concerns about the willingness of private companies to work with the government and the ability for the government to find new innovative products and get the best value for their contracting dollar. SBA has worked really closely with other agencies and the executive branch as well as with the administration to come up with initiatives to uh, find new entrants and reverse the decline in the small business supplier base. Just recently, the Office of Management and Budget issued a memo encouraging agencies to work with new entrants and recent entrants. And that memo came with two tools 
tools that agencies are being directed to use to find those companies. There's an equity tool that's online through the OMB and GSA's website, as well as a new entrant dashboard so that agencies can see exactly how much of their spending and how many of their vendors are new entrants. And there's another term as well, recent entrants that OMB introduced. So the data is getting out there. The ability to find these companies is now available. And it's really just up to businesses to market themselves to the government and you know, sign up in SAM.gov to find contracts, look for opportunities. And on the other side, for agencies to conduct outreach to those businesses and consider them in their competitions. The numbers you said are pretty eye-opening in terms of the decline. Are there any kind of underlying root causes to that that SBA has been following over the years in terms of that declining small contractor base? Well, one thing you mentioned is that the dollars are getting larger. So at the same time that small business contracting has now gone over $140 billion on its way to $150 billion, up from what was less than $100 billion just a few years ago, the number of small businesses that are splitting up that larger amount is smaller. And so that is a bit of a puzzle as to why even with greater opportunity, there are fewer small businesses that are participating in the industrial base. And it's any number of factors that we've identified at SBA and with agencies. We don't think there's one thing that has caused this to happen, but at SBA, what we're trying to do to address that is to enroll more companies into our programs. We have four certification programs now. We just introduced another one for 2023. And we found that the firms that participate participate in our contracting certification programs and our business development programs are more likely to stay in federal contracting and more likely to participate in the first place because they have that extra assistance from SBA and they have that certification. So we're doing our best to get companies to, that are eligible to get into the programs and keep them in there and give them the development assistance they need to go out and find contracts. Okay. To circle back to something you were saying earlier about the Biden administration's equity agenda and kind of the intersection of what SBA and small businesses are all about here, what are the administration's goals in terms of that equity agenda as it applies to SBA and, and what we're talking about here? The main part is what you mentioned, that new goal, that 15% goal by 2025 for small disadvantaged business. That's a government-wide goal. But to get to that government-wide goal, we need each agency to spend a little bit more with small disadvantaged business because as a government, we've never gotten to 15% before. We never got into 11% until last year. So every agency needs to do a little bit better on spending with small disadvantaged business. So what we do at SBA is we work with every agency to identify a reasonable goal that they can meet. Not every agency has the same 15% goal. Most agencies are actually higher than 15%. So we work with each agency to figure out what the opportunity is for finding small disadvantaged businesses. And then we assign that goal. And then on a contract level, we have SBA employees that work with the agencies to look at their contracts and see whether they could be awarded to a small business, small disadvantaged business, one of the 8A program or in our other programs like the Women-Owned Small Business Program, the Hub Zone Program, or our new serviceable veteran-owned certification. Again, to change gears here a little bit, the Biden administration has set a pretty wide goal in terms of improving customer experience in government. And what we've seen from the executive order on that and other administration documents, there are some goals in mind for SBA. Could you tell me a little bit about those, the progress made and the progress you guys are tracking going forward? 
Our biggest interaction with businesses on the contracting side is through our certification business development programs. I still remember when I started at SBA, the applications were done in paper and you would get them in a big folio to review over at SBA. And of course, we've moved those all online. And just in the past year, we've made major strides in improving the online application experience for 8A firms in particular. We really streamlined that application as well as for veteran-owned businesses in moving our veteran-owned certification from what used to be with the Department of Veterans Affairs over to SBA. We've made improvements as well on the HUBZone program, the Women-Owned Small Business program in those certification programs. So all businesses and all of SBA's programs have seen the online experience improve and we're working with agencies and with our contracting partners to make those applications even more streamlined and, and easier to use. That was Sam Lee, the Director of Policy, Planning and Liaison within SBA's Office of Government Contracting and Business Development, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, President of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look in Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children 
plaster these pages of Looking Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Looking Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, 
uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you gotta understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.